Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Recorded live from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Welcome to Beer Me on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. I'm rocking a little bit of a sore throat because of the uh, D.C. winter here going up and down. However, I think it's a little more sultry. Uh, We'll go with that. (laughs) So every week, I will have a guest on the show to discuss different parts of the beer world. From brewers, importers, educators, this will allow us to examine the dynamic world of beer through different lenses. Whether you're new to beer or a seasoned professional, we will have something for you. So today, I'm very excited to welcome on the show Joshua Bernstein. He is a beer, spirits, food, and travel journalist. And I think that's really not enough of a descriptor because he's written multiple books, Brewed Awakening, Complete Beer Course, Complete IPA, Homebrew World. He is the contributing editor at Imbibe Covering Beer. He's written articles in New York Times, Men's Journal, Wine Enthusiast, and somewhere along the way he does have a life in Brooklyn, New York. And he recently published a book, Drink Better Beer, Discover the Secrets of the Brewing Experts. Joshua, thank you so much for taking time out of your Sunday to call in. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And yeah, I just got done judging a chili competition. So I guess that's another thing to add to the <laughs> roster of available talents on a weekly basis. Josh will judge chili competitions and write beer. That's, that's, quite, a, that's quite a range there. So um, I recently purchased your book. And first and foremost, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, but we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, something to kick us off, though, is I was going through... Um, you know, kind of like your, your bio that you have at the end of the book. And I noticed that you highlight that you are a big dumpling fan. I am a big dumpling fan. I was just in Boston for a book event on Thursday. And then I woke up in the morning. I said to myself, what do I need before getting on the train back home? And I was like, dumplings. And I found a place, I think Dumpling King in Boston, right by the uh, train station where I got 10 uh, pork and mushroom dumplings at 10 a.m. As the owner sat down next to me and remarked, you ate those so quickly. And I was like, yes, they're dumplings. They're delicious. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so do you have a favorite? I mean, dumplings are like a wide range of things. Are you partial to soup dumplings, steamed, fried, that kind of thing? I think before I started caring about my health, I was all fried all the time. Mm-hmm. And now I'm investigating the, uh, the nuances of steamed dumplings out there as well, too. So I'd probably say steamed dumplings tend to be my jam. Not opposed to a good fried in the right time and place. But fried dumplings are very much like... You need to get them fresh and right away. Any fried dumpling that's been sitting around for 15 minutes is not going to be good at all. So I try not to get fried dumplings out and about at dumpling shops. I try to focus on the steamed there as well and then do the fried at home mainly. That's my, that's my dumpling pro tip. Fried dumplings I love are great, it. Immediate, great yeah. immediately, bad after 10 minutes. Like anything fried, it's just like your French fries aren't good after 20 minutes. And I mean, it's just like, you know, people can say any French fry is a good French fry, but a French fry that's old and cold, not a good French fry. No, absolutely not. So do you have a favorite dumpling spot in New York, then? Because that's your, that's your home. Uh, where do I go to? If I'm going out to Sunset Park, which is one of the big Chinatowns in Brooklyn, I go to a place called Kai Fang in the, I think, 48th Street. They do a really good fried dumpling for me. I tend to go there for that if I'm looking for that aspect. Um, 
in the city, uh, Lam Zhao, which is on, uh, oh gosh, the Bowery, uh, does really amazing uh, steamed dumplings and good fried as well, too. Um, soup dumplings, I don't eat quite as many soup dumplings as I used to. But um, if I go out, but I do love the, the wontons over at Wu's Wonton King in East Broadway in Chinatown as well. But they do a bunch of different varieties. You can get these amazing kind of uh, dumplings and bone broth, and it's kind of what you want when the weather turns cold and you're not feeling great. So that's kind of what I go for as well. Thank you for humoring me on this dumpling expert. I know, <laughs> okay. I know you called in to talk about your book, but as soon as I talked dumplings, I was like, all right, we need to talk about dumplings. That's a very important about, topic. <laughs> I think, you know, I think for me too, it was really about how do you survive in New York City? I mean, I've been here 20 years, and so we got here, and then I got here, like, well, in 2000. And so how do you survive? It's like, you know, how can you, what can you cut down around the edges to make everything possible? And, uh, you know, a huge Chinatown aficionado to go down there and buy freshly made tofu. I'd find all the great dollar dumpling shacks. And so for me, what initially started as a way to kind of, you know, make it through New York City and not <laughs> and not be too hungry became this like, exploration of the city's um, dining riches from the cheaper end of the spectrum for uh, a place called Metro Mix. They don't exist anymore, but Metro Mix was an online publication for a number of years. They had a New York City outlet. We did a column called Dollar Grub, me and a photographer, Sam Harine where we go around to different cities and neighborhoods and try to see what you get for a buck. And so it's always this interest. And dumplings have always been this baseline food stuff at so many shops that for a dollar you can get, I think it used to be five for a dollar, now it's down to three for a dollar or four for a dollar. I remember, was it Victoria's? Up. Victoria's dumplings, you get six for a dollar. But that, yeah, was, that, that was, was years uh, ago. Yeah, for, oh gosh. I know, over on... Uh, Near NYU. Yeah, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. there's one over on... Uh, Veronica? Yeah, over on Eldridge Street. I think that was the chain that started off down there. Yeah, I mean, before my wife, my girlfriend lived around the corner uh, on the Bowery, and we used to go down there, and that was like the dumpling shack we would hit up all the time, too. But yeah, and I mean, this became an exploration of like what was possible for a dollar in New York City, and I think the city always afforded lots of high and low riches, and that's kind of what I always really, it still excites me about living there, that you don't need to be a millionaire to live here. Oh, yeah, for sure. When I left Astoria, New York, to move to Washington, D.C., the goodbye to my halal guy where I would get lamb over yellow rice with white sauce for $5, and that was essentially two meals, was the most tearful goodbye by far. I know. That was your happy, both your happiness and your healthiness. That's what sustains you. We used to love, I opened Astoria for two years, we lived off of Steinway Street, off of 28th Avenue, 38th Street, by a dive bar called the Irish Rover, where every third beer was always free. So if you had three beers, if you had two beers, the third was three, and five beers, or six was three. So it was always a, a game of, like, what multiplication problems you want to get into that night. <laughs> was it a three, six, or nine kind of kind of day? So, uh, but there's a place called Mano Tapaya over on Steinway Street. We go to over always at four in the morning, five in the morning. And, you know, two hot dogs for, you know, two bucks and, and the last call. And right before you went to bed, and that's kind of what, you know, when we left Astoria, that's one of the things that was racing had to us, saying goodbye to our, you know, 5 a.m. hot dog guy. Yeah, well, thank you for uh, taking me down uh, memory lane here with New York City and uh, and some cheap eats. Um, so now that I, I feel like we've thoroughly covered your love of dumplings, which I think is really important, anybody out there interviewing uh, Joshua in the future should definitely talk to him about dumplings. Fifteen um, minutes minimum on dumplings, <laughs> and that's and that's it. That's great. Um, so let's let's talk about this book. So you've written a lot of books. They're all I really. Have. I don't know how you do it, but they're all organized very well. They're all written very well. Um, But I think this one, I think, is um, my favorite. I'm not just saying that because 
the the thing is with beer and with spirits and with wine, you've got a lot of people who know a lot, right? They uh, cultivate a ton of information. And when you ask them a question, they'll say like, ugh, I can't believe you don't know that, right? But, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And if you're asking questions, you know, it makes sense to have that answer be kind. So the beauty of this book is I think you broke it down really nicely. And basically... I almost felt like um, I was a beer newbie asking you very simple questions like, all right, when I go to a bodega, how do I buy some beer? What do I look for? And you just answered it super, super simply. And I think that this was definitely something that was missing out there in the beer book world. Yeah, I think too. I mean, if we go back, if you go back, you know, I think, gosh, of course, I've had like five books in eight years, which is insane. And trust me, that's not a sustainable pace. <laughs> Could not do another five in eight years. But I mean, if we go back there in the beginning, it was really about explaining, like, this world's crazy. Can you believe there are flavors? And their flavors are different than lager. And that was really important, I think, back in the, uh, you know, late 2000s, early, early 2010s, whatever we're calling that decade. So I still don't know. But, that that um, one decade. Yeah, but then I think you had this idea where you could try beers that were accessible to everybody. You could almost have a collective knowledge base of what beer was that, you know, you drink these certain monk-made Belgian beers, you drink these certain IPAs, and you all had a collective joint understanding. So you'd almost drink through a list of, of beers and be really, you know, conversant in the language of American and international beer. That kind of got all blown out the window. It's just this mad rush toward 8,000-plus breweries in the country, plus thousands more around the world, that the beer I just drank down the road at Strong Road Brewing while judging a chili competition you know, a uh, like a blonde ale is not anything that anybody, you know, four states away from here is probably going to try anytime soon, unless they come visit this one specific brewery in New York City. So, what, how do you how do you talk about things that people can't have? And so, the idea is not to talk about specific beers and their experiences of drinking these one or two beers, but really about like what it is that drove things to get to this point right there. And I think I tried to focus in the book on a much more sort of. Um, information based around the themes and the ideas and that are really driving and changing the way we consume beer in the country. And that meant kind of eliminating the list of beers to try. It's not like 10 beers to try before you die. I could give you a list of like a thousand beers and chances are you won't be able to drink all of them. I mean, it's just impossible nowadays. Oh, but yeah. you can learn things that next time that you go around to buy your beer that can make that beer selection that much more impactful and understand and just be a more sort of... Um, informed consumers so much about I think where, where beer's been it's been really about celebrating the rock star brewer but there really is so many parts of the beer business that are pushing things forward and making things happen and we don't tend to give credit to everybody else out there too so I wanted to have them tell their stories how important that you know the packagers the yeast lab technicians the people that buy the beers and sell it to you really go about you know helping make sure that the best, highest quality beer is in your hands. Like, what happens if it's not there? That you, too, have as much power to say, no, this isn't good, which we never do. I mean, sir, do you, do you send beer back very often? Or what, what's your take on when you, get, when you get beer that doesn't quite taste right? So, and for listeners just tuning in, um, I'm speaking with Joshua uh, Bernstein. He is a beer, spirits, food, and travel journalist. And he writes in magazines. He's written a million books by a million. I mean, way too many in eight years. And the latest one that he came out with is Drink Better Beer, Discover the Secrets of the Brewing Experts. So, you know, to your point, I, 
I hate, I, you know, I come up in, I've come up in restaurants, you know, I've worked in kitchens, I've worked uh, front of the house and to send back anything is really hard for me to do mm-hmm. um, because, you know, hospitality professional, you're just like, ah, I don't want to piss anybody off, right? You don't want to be that guy. But, um, you know, something that I've really uh, preached on this show multiple times is that, you know, we need to speak up about beer. There's a lot of beer, like you just said, being made out there. Um, and some of it is just for the sake of, all right, let's jump on this bandwagon. Um, and, you know, I think as a consumer, it's important to hold people accountable. You know, really look, like, when was it brewed? How, how, how long has this been sitting on the shelf? How has it been stored? You know, and when you get a beer, like, really looking at the glass, is it clean? You know, there's, it's, it, it's so hard to make that leap and be like, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, there's you know, lipstick on my glass or something like that. And of course, hopefully the bartender or whomever is in, so embarrassed and immediately fixes it for you, but sometimes people get embarrassed and then they get defensive and then, you know, you end up having yeah. a bad experience. I know, I think that's, uh, yeah, it's really a challenge right there too. And I think we don't take enough, owner- we'll pick more ownership over our food than we will over our beer, but our beer is something that's been made like a chef with careful consideration of ingredients. Then you have these ingredients carefully considered, put together in a final product. And then sometimes it's just, it's not the brewer's fault. And oftentimes I think what happens to me is you get a beer that's not good at the bar and then you taste it and like, you know, automatically you blame the brewer. It's like, oh gosh, this beer's terrible. We don't think about what's consideration about the environment am I, am I in? Was the beer poured properly? Has it been sitting around for a little bit? Was it too cold, too foamy? Not foamy enough. All these things all together. And I think that's really this, that disservice aspect is really what's missing in beer right now. That the service that we've had a rush towards better beer in America, you know, I mean, there's more better beer in America than any time I'd wager than the last century, but there's also more terrible beer out there as well. So, you know, yes. you know, it doesn't mean that everything's amazing just because it's made by your local brewery down the road. That, you know, there are bad beers being made as much as there's being great beers being made and yep. the bars being continually raised. I just think the um, education stuff on the staff education, I mean, the Cicerone program's done a great job of really pushing things forward on this on that side, but it's not everybody. Not everybody is this person that can name the difference between a Pilsner and a Munichalis and ensure that the beers are poured this proper way, too. So I think it's incumbent upon consumers as well to speak up and feel they have power in this as well, too, that we're not, you're not, you're not powerless. And so I think that's one thing I think that's really long been missing. Yeah. And, you know, I was, I was lucky enough, I worked with uh, Greg Angert of Neighborhood Restaurant Group um, for about two years at yeah. Bertram Valley Church Key, where, you know, glassware is so meticulously cleaned and planned as far as what beer you're putting, what style you're putting in what glass. The lines are immaculate. You know, the space is, you know, constantly being cleaned. You know, there's a lot of care and attention in the temperature of the beer. The temperature that's coming out of the drafts is really scrutinized. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting. I work um, a lot with, you know, a lot of different bars now. And, you know, you might have this world-class, amazing cocktail bar, and then they have, like, five obligatory beers that they just throw in a highball. Um, and you're, you're just, you know, it's like you're, you don't have a complete bar program. You have a complete cocktail program, and I'm sure it's lovely, but a complete bar program is paying attention to all all beverages, wine and beer. And I think, you know, beer gets forgotten a lot, especially with glassware. I mean, glassware too, but, you know, beer just doesn't have a reputation in America. I mean, we, we, we like, if I lived in my bubble, I'd feel that everything was perfect. But, I mean, I step out to my bubble quite often, and beer still gets dismissed by and large. Even steps toward education get 
kind of poo-pooed oftentimes. I was talking to like a well-known cocktail person, and he's like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, right, what beer? He's like, oh, are you one of the chicharronis? And I was like, why do you have to be an asshole? <laughs> like, I know, we're just having a conversation. It's almost like this flex of me being, just because I cared about something and automatically worth being dismissive. And it was like a very, you know, I'm like, I'm not making fun of you. It's like, all you're doing is mixing shit together and serving people in the glass. It's like, what are you? I mean, it's just, I, you, people people feel they're okay to dismiss beer still. And I just feel that it's it's such a big challenge still to push forward. And I'm just, just getting people to care about beer in a way that you can have the high and the low. Mm-hmm. You can have, you can have like, you know, your Coors Light served by the bucket of the sports bar. You can have that all together too. But you can also have really crappy cocktails served at the dance club, like Red Bull and vodka or something else. And people don't always acknowledge both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. But at the same time, if you're serving Coors Light by the, you know, let's say you're just pumping through draft, 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 draft of Coors Light, make sure your lines are clean. Make sure the glasses are clean. Like, you know, no, Coors Light is not my favorite beverage, but you know, there's a way to still serve it properly. Just, just because you're serving, you know, vodka Red Bull at a club, I'm, I'm sure you want your glasses clean. I'm sure you want your ice clean. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of care that goes into, you know, other beverages. And just to circle back, did he call you a chicharrone? Yeah. Like yeah. a fried, like fried pork skin. Yeah, fried pork skin. Or like, you know, like chabroni, chicharroni, something like that. But I was like, whatever. I mean, I, and, in some ways that's a compliment, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm delicious and desired <laughs> after drinking. So perfect. <laughs> I make for a great taco topping. Um, <laughs> you can. Uh <laughs> A nice little, uh, nice little surprise since I have a burrito as well too. <laughs> so, uh, something else that I noticed within your book, you have like a little blurb that says the top five beers consumed while writing this book, and I was so tickled to see number one was Bell's Two Hearted, because my staff at Birch and Valley Church Key when I worked there, that was like their shift drink. It was like Schlafly Kolsch or Bell's Two Hearted, and. Every time I see someone appreciating that beer, it puts a smile on my face. It's like a warm little nostalgic thing. You know, I grew up in the Midwest, mm-hmm. and so I grew up in Ohio. You know, I'm 41 now, so I kind of came of age when Bell's was really kind of coming into its own as far as drinking. And so Tour Ales one of the first IPAs that really kind of set the idea and the understanding of what uh, IPA meant, especially in that Midwest, that Midwest vernacular. So something I gravitated toward, and you know, what, what's really interesting about Bell's, I mean, A, it's available in New York City now, which is amazing. I can walk to my bodega down the road and get a, a, a chopped cheese and chocolate ale in about uh, one minute if I so choose right now, which is pretty amazing. Man, but um, I think what, what people forget that everyone's always like, hazy IPAs are everywhere and the world's gone hazy. If you look at the beers that are doing gangbusters, they all have like a very specific profile. It's a 7% slight malt backbone beer with, like, new new wave or citrusy profiles, like, you know, 7% Bell Sorted Ale. You've got, like, Cigar City Highlight IPA around that, that, that uh, ABV as well. The 7% seems to be this magic number for a lot of people out there. So it's not a double IPA. It's not there. You can have two or three, feel good about your day, put them away until later on, not quite the double strength. So there's something to be explored about this weird magic ground of, 7% beer, 7% IPAs with like a nice malt complexity to them as well, and, which is, yeah. And you mentioned, you know, the breweries doing gangbusters have this, you know, kind of more simple IPA with a little more malt backbone. But the other thing they have is they have consistency uh-huh. in their brews. You're, I, I never doubt the fact if I buy a case of Two Hearted, it's going to taste like the case that I bought, you know, a couple of weeks ago. 
So um, this is actually kind of perfect because I wanted to talk about um, your day inside Allagash's sensory program um, and a little bit about um, Lindsay Bars uh, from New Belgium, who's the sensory specialist, uh, her development of the app Draft Lab. Yeah, totally. I think for me, how do you how do you get beer that's consistent? How do you get beer that tastes the same every time? I mean, we don't often have the ability to drink the same beers from breweries week in, week out. It's just such such a challenge nowadays with things rotating so quickly that you don't often have this compare-contrast aspect. But, I mean, there's a lot of legendary beers that have been around out there for a while. And how do you, how do you kind of keep a consistent flavor profile in a world where your raw materials are always changing? You know, I mean, grains are changing every year. Hops are changing every year. The agrarian very variability of these products and how do you go about doing it to making sure that your beer stands the test of time and so for me i wanted to basically step inside algas and see what that was like i think for uh i mean they're on the east coast it's easier for me to apply to as well but i thought you know that was just happenstance because i think they run one of the best ships in the country right now as far as um creating dependable beers that taste the same every time but also pushing the boundaries of what beer can be so i wanted to go there and figure out how do you how do you tightrope walk both those things? So I sat down and, you know, sat through the program to make sure the beers tasted true to type in the marketplace, what deviated, had blind tastings, and then sat down with the yeast lab people to make sure how they go about making sure the packaging sits down. And what, what I found that in the absence of understanding what was going on, that you always look for the negatives. So you're, it's, it's really hard, I think, for people to cherish what's right in there or to say it's okay that we're always, as humans, oftentimes looking for the negative aspects of stuff, which is, you know, terrible, a terrible thing to notice. But it's just so fascinating to me that I would, I would go through the program, and I'm like, well, this is wrong, this is wrong. And they're like, well, these are all the same beer. You're just looking for something wrong and a different one altogether, which just taught me that, you know, why, why are we looking for something that's wrong all the time? Why can't I look for something that's right in there then go backward and making sure if it meets my expectations? So for me, it's pretty eye-opening to see my own um, prejudices. I mean, you're, I, I, how, do you, how do you treat a beer when you get a beer the first time? Are you looking for what makes it right? Are you looking for something that makes you feel that it's wrong? Or, or is it something you don't really think about? I mean, I, I kind of, you know, have like a little, um, you know, kind of Rolodex in my head of kind of like what certain beers mm-hmm. are that kind of I expect and... You know, I love trying the cool new thing, but I have a, a, a nice big Rolodex of favorites that, you know, I consistently return to. Um, and, yeah, when I'm, when I'm consuming a beer, I definitely, especially, like, for example, I mentioned Schlafly Kolsch. I absolutely love that beer, especially at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, I, I know exactly what that needs to taste like, mm-hmm. or I think I do. You know, hey, <laughs> I'm not a sensory specialist, but, um, you know, I, I definitely do think about, all right, is this, is this, is this the same experience that I get? And yes, yes, all the mm-hmm. time. And that's what gets me to keep buying that beer because I know that I'm going to get a consistent product. Yeah, I think for I think for me, I was always so. You know, part of my job and your job as well too is going through and trying all the new things all the time. So you tend to forget about some of these beers that really stood the test of time. But I think um, I've been burned so many times by just buying weird, random four packs of stuff in different markets for 18 bucks and being disappointed. And then just, you know, it's not that all beer is a good beer, but I mean, it's just, just a limited number of liver tokens. I always tell you like to spend in a given day. 
if, I, if a beer's not making me happy or not that, I mean, I'd rather eat the cost and just dump it down the drain and force myself to drink it yeah. just because it's booze I've, I've bought. But I think not, maybe not to safeguard myself, but I've found going back more toward classic beers, especially over the last, over the last year or so that, you know, you know, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is amazing for a reason. Go back and you're like, wow, this is great. It, if you got that beer from any other brewery blind, you would have been like, oh, my God, this is the most amazing thing. <laughs> but yeah. for some reason, because it's existed, and we don't tend to cherish what's existed in America. I mean, we've got, you know, got this idea that just because it's existed, it's somehow worthy of being forgotten. I mean, the same thing with pop culture, everything, and beer. I think beer is kind of like reaching that sort of age in America where breweries are, you know, 35, 40 years old now. And they're kind of your grandpa, even your dad's beer, maybe your grandpa's beer, your, your mom's beer. And so it's, you're always rebelling and rejecting what kind of came before you. So it's at a fascinating point right now where, conversely, these breweries have better equipment and technology to create the beers, but I don't think they're always being respected in the same ways or even sort of like cherished just because they've been around for a while. Oh, we're, always looking, yeah, we're, we're always looking for the new in America. We always, you know, at uh, a Bertram Raleigh like Church Key, of course, you get some beer nerds in, right? They always want to try the newest, the hippest, the coolest, right? Um, which I love because people are really passionate and they are really into it. But those people who drink a ton, a ton of beer and have, you know, a nice, like, solid uh, record on Untapped or, or, or whatever, um, I love to, to blind them on Allagash White. That was my favorite mm-hmm. thing. Like, oh, we got this really, really sick new beer, and it's really, really cool, really, really fresh. Here, here, here. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, wow, this is amazing. What is it? It's Allagash White. Please appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. It is. You almost have to, you know, not trick people so much. It's just, like, open their eyes to how great how great things are. And like, I try to be a pretty careful observer of buying habits of people as well, too, and what people are going after and what they're grabbing. You know, it's interesting. So... At our friends uh, for dinner last night, you know, they are buying lots of, uh, you know, Lagunitas, like tall boys, like 12th and ever and a little something easy, you know, mid percentage in the fours for there too. Usually around 2 two fifty, dependable and pleasure. And they stock their fridge with those. So they can pour each other a glass and have two glasses out of like a 20 ounce serving or 19.2 ounce serving, you know. It's really fascinating to watch these things. Like it tastes great. It's the right price point. And so it's, I think, that's something to think about, too, why people are going after certain beers as well. Not everybody can always afford to go off on these kind of, you know, can't afford to drop 120 bucks in a brewery every week. Yeah. So I think there's this, like, sweet spot out there of dependability and flavor and price point. And it's not a race to a bottom, but it's um, once you reach a certain economies of scale for some of these larger breweries, too, I mean, I think, I think it's cool it's bringing them and it's keeping them in this world of the price points they can afford at this moment. Yes. Um, so I want to cut a, sh- a little bit here. I want to move into talking about um, Draft Lab. Uh, so this is an app yeah. uh, that was developed by Lindsay Barr, the sensory specialist at New Belgium. Um, she and- just left there, I think, last year. So oh. she's, doing draft- she's doing Draft Lab full time. Okay, she went cool. There at- yeah, I mean, which is a good thing. It's a good thing. Yeah. Um, this thing proved itself to be a viable concept. So can you, I mean, my understanding is essentially this helps breweries kind of create descriptions for beer, so basically creating the standards that they taste to. Am I correct in that? Yeah, I think oftentimes what happens in the beer world is just that, you know, we think of labs, sensory labs being something that's only for very rich or very big companies of a certain size, that they are the ones that can afford to keep quality to you know, quality close to their chest. 
I think what is true is if you're tasting beer every day, you're doing quality control. So even the smallest breweries in quality control in their own way, like, yeah, it tastes good. Like, we're, we're getting there. It tastes great. But if you're not quantifying it, it's almost like knowledge that's lost to the ether. It just kind of floats away. So if you're not writing it down, verifying it, checking it to the past, it's kind of hard. So I think what Draft Lab does is it allows you to take, like, really simple um, quality, con- really simple, run through really simple quality control program and check up, talk about, like, what's the intensity of this? Is it, what's the bitterness like? What's the aromatics like? Is there anything wrong? What's right? What do you like about it? What flavors do you use to describe it? And just creating this, um, if you have other people do it, creating a mosaic of opinion that can center around this idea and this profile and help you keep track. So, so like, things, for, for example, yeah. you know, like aroma, it'll say, yeah. okay, it's a nutty aroma. Well, is mm-hmm. it walnut? Is it almond? Like, what, are, what kind of nutty, right? So it's yeah. like really, really breaking it down because... You know, yes, uh, taste is subjective, but at the same time, you know, if a beer tastes exactly like a chocolate chip cookie, most people know what a chocolate chip cookie tastes like. Yeah, kind of. But what it isn't about chocolate chip cookie, though, I mean, here's where here's where taste gets crazy, though, because we talk about what's a chocolate chip cookie. You say it's a chocolate chip cookie, but what it is is this melding of kind of like the buttery richness with the you know the Maillard reaction of the cookie browning against like the pan with the gooiness of the chocolate if it's still warm from the uh, oven as well. And then the sugary sweetness that comes in as well too. So okay, even now thing, I need it's a like chocolate chip cookie. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like breaking things down in a much more, you know. Or let's say you say that beer tastes very, you know, citrusy. Okay, what's that mean? It tastes like is it lemony? Whatever. You said it tastes very orangey. What does it mean to taste very orangey? Because orange, I think we talked about in the book, orange is both a color and an aroma and a flavor. And so, what's that mean? It's so blunt to almost mean nothing. So on there too. So it's really about kind of finding a way to break things down in a bit of a bit of a deeper way too. That you know, it's really hard for us to describe things if you don't have the language. So I think stuff like Draft Lab helps you kind of understand the language. We don't learn to speak until we read books and understand what words are and how they're spoken to us too. And you know, creating this link between I think our brains and our you know, our brains and our tongue and our nose and everything all together to describe the things that we're ingesting in our body is hard. You know, I was at a chili competition and just judging that, it's like, oh, you know, what could you say? This is spicy. Is it, okay, what type of spicy? Is it like an earthy spiciness, like an earthy, like dusky, you know, spiciness? Or is it like a bright, veg, like bright tropical scotch bonnet pepper spiciness? And so, you know, it's, it's just getting down there a little bit more, which it sounds really nerdy and time consuming but you know to take like take just a couple seconds to pay more attention make pay more attention to things too you know it's, i'm looking at our plants in our living room right now you know the leaves are green but they're also green speckled with white and some have you know some are less heart shaped than other ones and so it's really about just like providing a, a bit of a deeper parameters and understandings i think of what of what's out there and once you dive down deeper just a little bit i think you have a greater understanding of what's around you I mean, you, I think mindfulness is an easy, maybe mindfulness is the way to describe it as well, too, is just taking, taking the time to think about stuff. And it doesn't mean, like, taking an hour, but take two seconds to say, has this beer been poured properly? Is the glass clean? What's it smell like? Do I like the way it smells? You know, does it taste good? And, you know, I mean, that's enough. And that, we, don't, we don't often never do that. And I think um, Draft Lab, apps like that, really help you center center the experience and make you pay more attention to what's happening around you and what's happening inside you as well too. Yeah. I think this can also be applied to most things that you do in life. <laughs> yeah. I, 
pay attention. You got deep. Yeah, pay attention, but we don't pay attention. I think that with beer particularly, there's been this push toward trying. Check as beer has grown in number, there's more of a thing about ticking off experiences and saying you had this. Like, I am a person that's conquered, you know, Piney the Elder Mountain, and now I've done Mount Treehouse. I've climbed up in the treehouse. And now, you know, I've dove deep into, like, you know, breweries, inky, imperial stuff. So running out of analogies here, whatever. <laughs> but, you know, it's just, uh, it's about taking all these boxes off, about experiencing it. But, I mean, it's really just, like, thinking a bit deeper about what some of what these things are in front of you. Do they make you happy or not make you happy? What is it about it? And we're just, we're just rushing so fast right now to try new things with beer that we don't ever just sit back and really like, try to you know, get to the bottom of like, even six-packs sometimes. No, you're, you're 100% right. Um, and I really do appreciate your insight. Uh, thank you so, so much for taking the time to call in on the show. Um, and for folks out there, uh, please go out and buy Drink Better Beer, Discover the Secrets of the Brewing Experts by Joshua Bernstein. Um, it is on Amazon. It is in uh, bookshops. Are you coming down to D.C. at all for, uh, for some hopefully, fun? Hopefully, hopefully. Hopefully in 2020, we'll nice. hopefully make it down there. You know, we'll talk to Greg. Hopefully, get something cooking with them at Church Key because we talked to him with the book. One of the other amazing places, or just walk around, walk around Washington D.C. and drink beer too. <laughs> That's also <laughs> a uh, amazing thing possible. Yeah, um, I think you know people don't want to go to bookstores to uh, meet beer authors, so I try to go out in the place where people want to drink uh, beer and talk about books too. So, and I'm doing a lot of events over at breweries, uh, bars, and whatnot, just to you know meet people where they're drinking and uh, hopefully help them like think a bit deeper about what they're drinking too. I love it. Absolutely love it. Well, Josh, it was great talking to you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking uh, time out of your day. It's been great to sit back, share my plants in the living room, belly full of chili, glass <laughs> full of beer and uh, talk a little bit. Nice. What are you drinking? Um, something I don't love, but okay. I'm willing to give it a go. <laughs> I mean, it's called a New England breakfast ale. Okay. Which essentially, which you that mind, your mind goes to essentially like, oh, it's New England IPA with maybe coffee in it, but no, more of like a stout, a robust, like a dark, with robust like ale with like maple syrup and mm-hmm. a little bit of like coffee complexity. So something good, but if I have those type of beers, like the body is a little bit thinner than I want to be. Mm-hmm. Like if I have like that much like roasty complexity in there, I tend to want to have like a, you know, a rich full body to kind of balance it out. The maple syrup doesn't come through, but maple syrup's a real tough one. You know, it's one of those things that doesn't come through in beer quite as well as you would hope all the time. Yeah, no, I feel you on that. Well, thank you so much. Uh, listeners, this has been Beer Me on Full Service Radio, recorded live at the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. Cheers. And cheers. Have a great day. Bye.